Hi, this is Sherry Lewis, host of Bluebells Forever podcast. Next week, myself and Athena Pataxel, the host of Showgirls Life, will be hitting the road. We are doing a showgirl road trip where we will be going to Las Vegas, Reno, and LA, and visiting some of the guests that we've each had on our podcast, a fun reunion, getting to see some of these people that we've grown quite fond of through doing the interviews, but also visiting some iconic places where some of these amazing shows happen, getting back on stage, getting to see some of the costumes that are being preserved, some of the history. So we would love to share that with you. If you'd like to follow along on our road trip, you can go to Athena's website, which is showgirl.life. And I will be posting each day on social media on Bluebells Forever podcast on Facebook and Instagram. So join us. Hello and welcome to Bluebells Forever, a podcast with interviews of Bluebell dancers past and present. Join Sherry Lewis, a Bluebell herself, as she leads us on a journey through story and experience. And now here's Sherry. Welcome, Pamela Payton, and I'm really get to, really excited to get to interview you because one thing I do is I look through everybody's photos and I get really excited because honestly, some people don't have it and they have to go pull out the trunk and the the uh, things are in storage and try to find their photos. But you had yours readily available, which I think is a gift because I realized like a lot of the fun of doing the podcast is showing people's photos when I when I launch it. And everybody gets so excited to see it because honestly, when I left the show, who, who do I want to say, Hey, come over and look at my photo albums of me not wearing many clothes and look how glamorous, like it's not something that you get to share a lot of those photos with because a lot of people don't get it. So I think we get so excited to get to have photos come out and to see other people's, even if we weren't in the same show, I loved seeing the costumes of the glamour and just to see you in the, these iconic, beautiful feathers and the, the glamour of that. So Thank you for having a well-sourced Facebook page of beautiful photos. And then I also was intrigued, which we'll circle around to this later, that, that you're a um, therapist, which I, we talked earlier on, a huge fan of therapy and therapists, which are so needed right now. So that's just a fun, you know, whatever that trajectory, tra- trajectory that gets you from showgirl <laughs> to therapist, I'm sure is going to have some interesting uh, in between. So can you tell a little bit of, Let's just start like growing up when you were dance. Were you a dancer in the shows? Not a singer? I was not a singer. I, I, a dancer. I, I'm a closet singer. Okay. <laughs> so what got you started into dance and, and pursuing this life of being a glamorous showgirl? Well, it must be in somehow in my genes because of uh, uh, flashing to my mother. My mother became one of those senior tappers in Las Vegas. And she would drive around to all the assisted livings. But when I was a little girl, she showed me a picture of herself that uh, in the little town of Southern Utah, Escalante, Utah, she went to the one little movie theater and she'd see the, uh, the dancers on uh, those Broadway shows. And so she put tin cans on her shoes and she formed a little group and there's pictures of them making their own costumes and, and tapping on, on plywood. And I thought, my goodness, my mother went to, to that extent to somehow exhibit her dancing things. And here I am dancing in front of the, the full length mirror at home. And my mom said, you know, I haven't got the money or the time to take you to dance classes. And so I started babysitting at age nine, my, my sister, then at the neighborhood. And then I bought my bus fare to Margaret Ketchum Dance Studio on Stewart Avenue in Las Vegas. She lived on top and her dance studio was down below. And she, within that hour, we were doing baton, ho- ho- hula dance, 
uh, ballet and you know jazz. I mean, bar work. It you know it was it was just really fun. Oh and my gosh. Uh, I, I remember I would point my toe and my 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 toe would shake and I thought what's going on with me and I realized oh I need to eat some food after school uh, that I would get Charlie horses and my so I was almost not going to do it anymore because I just kind of felt after school and with my homework and everything and trying to take a bus there and back it was too much and so for a while then I broke away but I was always watching the movies and I was forever dancing in front of the mirror in the living room. Did you, you grew up in Vegas? Yeah. What was it? Was there a reason your family was in Vegas? Well, um, my great, 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 great grandmother came across as a pioneer with her mother and the handcarts. They were with the Mormon expedition. And part of them broke off and went to Escalante, Utah. And I was in a Mormon community in Las Vegas. And I was a very devout Mormon. I went, my mother played the organ and the piano in church, but uh, as I got over the age of five, uh, she remarried, you know, another person who wasn't a Mormon and she wasn't that devout. And so I was the only one in my family who went to church and I was in brownies and Girl Scouts and getting the, the awards on my bandolo in church. So I was very, uh, you know, straight A student, good girl. My, my, my siblings always said, oh, you're the angel in the family. You know, they, they, they couldn't stand the fact that I was uh, always wanting to win awards. Oh my gosh. So when you grow up in Vegas, you know of the strip and you know of the shows, did you, or was that not anything that you had any witness to of what the shows yeah, were like? The, uh, the Thunderbird, Flower Drum Song and South Pacific, they were family shows, um, but I had no idea. And then we went to the Silver Slipper, we would go eat in different buffets, but as far as seeing topless, I didn't know about that. And I'm working in Diamonds in the Boulevard Mall and it was really exclusive uh, department store at the time. And uh, why they put this young person who's only 17 in the men's department, I don't know. <laughs> and uh, Sandra Dornini and Frederick Apgar, who was Frederick Apgar was the producer, Sandra was his assistant uh, from the Dunes Hotel came in and they said, oh, you should be a showgirl. And well, you know, what's that? And uh, they gave me their card and they told me a little bit about it. I came home and told my sister who's 11 months younger than me, pa Pamela and Paula, and Paula never danced in front of the mirror. She never showed an interest in dancing or joining with me and my two girlfriends when we did our little Bel Air sisters uh, group. And so uh, she said, but do it, do it. So we got into my car. I had an all white Mustang. At, I'm, I'm 15 and a half and I'm driving a 65 all white Mustang with my babysitting money. So I mean, I tell you for, for years and years I was working to have that car. And so we stopped at the Stardust and they were rehearsing for a new show and Bluebell was there with Don Arden and all the cast was, you know, just sitting around munching and things like having their break. And they put the two of us, she, my sister's 16, I'm 17, on the stage with some guy that had, it's kind of gypsy looking, maybe you might know his name. He had a bandana on his head. He was a choreographer. And uh, the, the, we were supposed to, Don, Don Arden was saying, follow what he's doing. And so I was able to do what he did exactly, but my sister hadn't a clue. And then we went backstage with Don and Blue, Miss Bluebell and uh, they both chose me uh, looking at my, uh, you know, ensemble. <laughs> and I had the short hair then, so they were yanking on my hair. Oh, that has to go, it has to go. You can't hold on to the wigs with that. 
I didn't know what they were totally talking about. I just kind of felt like, okay, we're in the strange land and how interesting this all is. What, what an adventure. And then what we, what, my sister knew that she hadn't been chosen. So we just kept driving and we went to the dunes and Pat McKegney, the line captain was rehearsing Joy Rogers on the stage. You know, you never forget these names or the, they make such an impression on you. And the showroom was really dark. It was just the two of them. And I knew that I was wanting to look for Frederick Apgar and Sandra Dardini. And later on, I went to their office to talk with them about, you know, contracts and things. But um, uh, Pat McKinney asked me to go in that night. And she did look at my sister and myself and she chose me right away and said no to my sister. So I felt really bad because my sister was the main one who wanted this and had nudged me. And yet I got chosen at two places. So then I went to the show that night and I was sitting in the band and I said, oh, the, the costuming was like the Louis XIV number with jewels and uh, the Japanese was pearls and the costumes were spectacular. And I, I said, I don't know what it's like to be in those shows. And what, are, what are these girls like and everything? And they, they said nothing but positive things to me. So then I went and asked my mom and she said, well, you know, I'm afraid if I sign for you to go in before you're 18 and anything bad happens to you, you'll blame me. So I, ha I, I had to wait. And that was something like maybe six more months and the dunes called me every week. The stardust didn't ever call me at all. And so because the dunes called me so much that persistence paid. Were you talking uh, as a show? Oh wait, that's mine that has this weird feedback. Uh oh, did you hear that? It's like a monster. <laughs> no, I didn't hear anything. There's some weird feedback with my mic. Um, so you, your how hard was the dance audition? Was it like they were more posing and walking? What were they looking for? That you? Yes, it, at the time, you know, it's, I, th I think they definitely could see how nervous we were. And it's, I had very limited dance training. So the main thing, I, I'm 5'10", so very tall. And uh, so they mostly had me doing the showgirl walk and posing and doing some, you know, hip things and, and just seeing that I could follow the direction of, of, of everything. Then they wanted to see that I, that I didn't have any weird marks and I have, a, you know, I guess a nice development and a nice look. And so they chose me for those things. And um, I just, just was exciting, very, very exciting too. When I went into the show, the Dunes didn't have an opening in the big showroom. So I went in the Viva Lake Girls at first. And then I went over to the big showroom, the Casino de Paris. So how was that being a conservative Mormon and going to those costumes? Was it not a big deal or did you have to grapple with some decisions there and, you know, your family and to support to go do this? Was it, or just like, Hey, this looks like a really great idea and I'm just going to go for it. Cause that doesn't yeah. seem like an easy thing to choose coming out of your background. It wasn't. Um, and then I looked at it and I thought, Okay, well, there's the cabaret, maybe a Palomino club where the girls are on poles. And, you know, God bless them for different ways that people feel that that suits their fancy. Uh, but for me, when I was when I saw that show in the large showroom of the Louis XIV number, especially that was so spectacular, I thought, I don't think God created us to feel be ashamed of our bodies. And this is done in a very classy way. And so I felt, even though I'm a very devout Mormon and I'm a virgin and I'm going into the show, and when my mom and dad come see me with any friends they might have and say, mom, you know, you, this goes to show you, you should have given me those dance lessons. 
But that's amazing that you got in. And there's like, there's something that, that being in front of the mirror all that time. Like, I think some people know their body more from that than taking lessons and just doing what they're told. So there's, there's something that set you apart there and being tall is not it. Cause you can be tall and gangly. You can be tall and yeah. awkward. So there was some reason that, well, that you Viva stood Lake out. Girls was all dancing. You, you're not a mannequin at all in Viva Lake Girls. So to put me in that show right off the bat. And I learned the show within just two weeks. So uh, the, going in the, the, the placements and, and learning the whole show and, and, and being, you know, barely turning 18. I mean, two weeks after I turned 18, I was on the stage, literally. Wow. And wow. so then I was in, the, that show was very demanding. I remember Paul Anka loved Viva Lake Girls. You know, Ron Lewis's choreography is so fabulous. Yeah. Oh, is the costuming. Um, so but I wanted to be in the bigger room. You know, this is nice. Uh, and, and I loved always the, the, the show girls in the show were wonderful. When I went to the big room at the Casino de Paris, I had some, I would have to say there was two times I was in the Casino de Paris. Early on when I was 18 and 19, and then later on when I was around 28. And uh, it was always tougher girls. The girls were, uh, there would be fights and arguments and, uh, uh, misunderstandings and rumors and gossiping and uh, there was just a different kind of a culture backstage uh, but when I was in the Lido and Hallelujah Hollywood it was joyous it's very very wonderful yeah um that's also like if you're naive enough like if this is the first time you come in there like just even what with the conversations I'm because I went in as a virgin I went in as very conservative and just things that people are talking about like Oh my, I'd never been with around gay people before. I'd never been with people of color. So for me, I'm super thankful for it because it opened my eyes yeah. with people that were beautiful and kind, not like this is the, the world. Good luck with this. I felt like it was a great way to experience more than my small town and my church culture. Um, but I'm just curious for you, did you were you kind of in shock of some of the conversations or the life and kind yeah. of had to adapt? Well, um, I once came out of the bathroom with a toothpaste tube. And it was just all bent and everything. And I and I, I had that kind of young girl sense of humor. I mean, I'm going in the show. At the time I went to the casino show and it was a different line of girls that were not as nice as the Viva Lake girl girls backstage. And I showed the toothpaste tube and I was cracking up about, it. you guys look at this toothpaste tube. This is hilarious. And they all turned around, they looked and then they went back to their makeup and not a single set, not, not, bereft of sense of humor, totally. And I realized, oh, I'm in it. I, you know, Dorothy's landed in some kind of a different Oz here, you know? Oh, wow. And mm -hmm. I had to watch my stuff. But then I found my friends, I, which have still been with me to this day. We're on Facebook together. And uh, like Pamela Denae, who's in, uh, in France, uh, you know, she lives in Monte Carlo. And uh, she was a dancer in the show. And she did Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. And she danced so beautifully in that. And so there were these different people that emerged that were very wonderful. Jenny Pallone, who was a singer in the show, and Duke Molnar, that she married him, uh, they're on Facebook. And so it's wonderful to still be in touch with them. How long did you stay in each show? Did you just do one contract and then go to the next, or did you stay anywhere longer than others? Well, you're right. You're asking all the right questions because that really does lead into a pivotal of time that um, I didn't go into the show new, yet I'd witnessed a show that was in its inception at the Lido when I went to audition. And I thought, oh, that'd be really nice to go in in the beginning and they give you the costumes and set you up like, oh, Pamela, I want you to be here. And I think, oh, I'd be 
love that. And so the Dunes hired me for the next show. And I was in communication with Madame Bluebell and I wanted just like you to travel and go to her places like we've spoken about. And she said she's putting together a Far East mission of 10 different countries. And I, I, I maybe it wasn't 10 countries, it was like 10 months in a number of countries. And so I had to leave the show and go back home and get myself prepared for that tour. So I thought I had to make a decision. I want to go to college and I want to be in a new show, but here's Bluebell. Mm. I got to go with Bluebell. It's my opportunity. And I've heard so much about her and it's a chance to travel. And so I went back home. I left my apartment, on, you know, Desert Inn Road apartments behind the Desert Inn Hotel that was really swanky and moved in back with my parents. And I'm waiting, six months go by. And I finally get a phone call through to Bluebell in Paris. Because you know, it's not easy to, to call Bluebell in Paris. And uh, she gets on the phone and she's, uh, I could hear the music in the background. She must be backstage at the time. And she says, oh, no one contacted you that the tour was canceled. And oh. I was devastated because it's like, oh, come see, come saw. And now, I mean, so much, I went without income. I, I would put my life on hold. And so I thought from there on, if I'm going to travel to Europe, I'm doing it on my terms or anywhere I travel, I will control the situation and I'm going to get my college done, which I did. And then from there on, in all the shows I was in in Las Vegas, Never once did I get the chance to go into a brand new show. And I'm not even on any of their programs. None of the programs were, they were all done before I came in. And so I never had that experience. Oh, wow. that's, I'm still getting my weird feedback. Cause I'm in, I came into Hello Hollywood, Hello, maybe 11, 12, I know it was quite a year, but I'm in the program, but I don't know how often they redo it. So that's really, that's sad that you're not on a program. Because sometimes they redo it because the shows run for so long. I think there might be a program here or there where I, 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 I wasn't able to find them. Like they'll post programs and I'd say, well, I was in the show, even though I'm not on the program. Okay. Here's the thing of this. There's some people that didn't have photos. Like if you have photos of this person, post them and then we, we can find posters. If someone has a program, okay, go ahead and name all the shows you were in and someone's bound to have a program. Okay. All right. <laughs> So in the early 70s, I was in Viva Les Girls and the Casino de Paris, then Lido, Ale Ale Lido, and then after that, Hallelujah Hollywood, and then went back to, um, I think it was the Dunes, then the Lido, and that was it. But you were pretty constant then. Did you just go one to the other? Or I were think you... the last Lido was called Pukwa Pa. That was the one with Barbara Beverly as the principal. She was magnificent. We're going to find her and get an interview with her yeah. because she's um, Billy Goodson's crush. So and, did and, you and seven did... years that I was on stage, it was with Siegfried Dufroy where the finale and they were wonderful. And I came to know Siegfried very well and became very good friends and was invited to their home on a number of occasions. And uh, Maureen Owen, who was the line captain, she went on to work with them. And so when my daughter got old enough, she was 15, I thought it's time for her to go see Siegfried and Roy and she'll really appreciate it. So we always went to Vegas all the time, even though we moved to, I moved to LA um, when I was 30, I would go to Vegas maybe every three months. And so uh, Maureen Owen set it up that we're in a booth and Siegfried disappears from the stage. And next thing I know, I feel somebody pushing on my shoulder and he's popped up in the audience with the spotlight there and I'm holding him up there. And it's like, oh, da, 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 there's Siegfried. 
And uh, so it was just, he was all sweaty and worked up because he'd had to run all the way where he had to, to, to pop up in the audience. And so we went backstage and Roy was busy with the cats and, and we had a picture with Siegfried and I said, wow, you know, you look good. You know, he's oh, I still have it. I said, yeah, you still have it. And there were some young guys there waiting for him. And uh, I said, remember this show? And, and he said, well, don't you remember? We were also in Hallelujah Hollywood together. And he remembered that even though he had so many, I was just a phenomenal that he would remember that. Yeah. With all the people that were the chorus and people in the show and Lynette, who was his assistant, she used to work on dance on the other row, uh, on the other side of me. And she was always very close with both of them. And she went on to work with them as a magical trick assistant. And then Roy, after we got our pictures taken, my daughter and Siegfried, and we were walking away, Roy came out and I thought, should I go back and get a picture with Roy? No, I don't want to impose. It can't be about the pictures. He must be tired with the cats. I don't, you know. And I'm kicking myself that I didn't do it because two weeks later, that cat attacked him and there was oh. the end of their show. So the timeliness that we were, uh, I was able to go and see them right before that happened, that horrible thing. And I really oh. mourn their loss now that it's so hard to believe that Siegfried just passed as well. Because I know that um, the leader de Paris at the Stardust was when I went to I went to audition for the show I just walked backstage I didn't know you weren't supposed to do that and I asked for an audition and I walked right into Siegfried and Roy's dressing room and they're putting their makeup on their g-strings and I was like I want an audition like I was so naive but I know they were part of that show and then they got their own show eventually but I feel like a lot of people have them in their stories like either from that show and I think maybe a few other shows did they kind of stay separate from the cast or was um it's like you've got a lot to do with the cats it's not like they're probably hanging out backstage in her else's dressing room yeah um if it was at the stardust you know you just come in and their room was immediately to the right and then they had uh some cages where they even had black panthers and, and the, 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 the the cats when they were little and um, I'm forgetting one of the other principals she would always have a masseuse come in between shows and give massages and so I, I had a, an interest in doing that as well. So I got a table made and I, I studied a hippie book on massages and I was doing massages upstairs for a while. I didn't do it for a long time, but um, I just, to me, I, I, the laying on of hands and, and giving that to others as, as you're doing, it, it's, it's a wonder, even though I'm a therapist, I think sometimes people get more in their hour by actually having a, a massage. Touch, super. <laughs> So what was it, okay, backstage, I'm assuming those cats make noise too. Like you've got backstage with dancers and huge cats and <laughs> were they, was it just part of the backstage? And I talked to somebody who was at the Moulin Rouge years ago and they had a sea lion backstage and it was just normal that, you know, yeah. you've got the a barking sea lion and you've got monkeys and we've talked about elephants. It's just our world that we lived in seems normal to us. And then you think about it like, oh yeah, it was backstage with like, I don't know if they had the white tigers back then. I think they did. They did. Yes. As a matter of fact, uh, there was one of their, the, you know, the stage hands were very instrumental in helping them do their tricks. They have to make an elephant disappear on stage. So it's all optical illusions and mirrors. And, and they think that somebody's where they are, where they're not, but they appear somewhere else. And so you, you, you kind of know that they would tell the cast to stay away, but when they're working on different things that we can't, eavesdrop or get in the way that we should stay in our dressing rooms when Siegfried and Roy are on stage. Don't try to come down and, and peek and see if you can figure it all out. 
Um, but there was another time that we were getting ready to go on that once Siegfried finishes his final thing, this was in the Lido show, and Roy got trapped in the thing that somehow a lever that moves him from one side of the cage and the tiger to the other, and his foot was stuck in it. And I, we could tell he was in excruciating pain, but he couldn't emit sounds. And so they just wheeled the thing off the stage. It just somehow it was uh, one of the tricks that went awry. It wasn't finished. And the music starts and we're going to, you know, the curtain's going to open and we're going to go on. Uh, but I remember that that was the only time that there were in mm -hmm. all the seven years I was with them that there, there was another time that Siegfried opened the cage and he wants to act like, you know, the lion and the lion actually uh, st struck at him. And then there was blood coming on his face and the audience, we heard the, the audience go, <gasps> and we all paused backstage, something's happened. And that's when we realized that that he had to stop the act too because he was had been struck by the lion. Wow. And then wow. Tanya the elephant early on, we didn't like the fact that Tanya and the MGM, Hallelujah Hollywood was being, you know, poked. And, and then in the Lido, they had this, a cement box that they would put the elephant in and it would be chained and it would be there all day long. And its trainer would take it out around the parking lot, bring it on stage, take it back in that container. And I look at that and I think we don't mm. need an animal in the show for it to suffer like that. There's so it's much so now that I look like, oh, that's really cruel. But it's like, oh, there's horses on stage. But I'm thinking maybe that wasn't such a good thing that yeah because i'm like well where did they go afterwards like how well are they treated not here one horse came out from the rear of the stage backstage at a full gallop almost to the edge of the the stage and it it didn't stop it went right out went, went right onto the table of the couple there and uh of course the show had to be stopped for a while and then of course they didn't bother to have the horse anymore after that it, it just it, just one one evening that it didn't go well. Uh, the Valentes, the unicycle team, uh, you know Scott mm -hmm. Belden and, and his friend Don. Uh, they very funny. They were on unicycles, and it was in the I think it was in Hallelujah Hollywood that they a little bit of water had gotten on the stage, and it was just enough for the wheel to pop out and hit a woman in her head uh, sitting there. Oh man. Another time, you know, the women that come down from the ceiling and they come down below, one of them broke loose and she fell into the audience. So then the, that was, I think it was uh, also in the MGM, the plate glass that goes uh, where the, the lighting men are and mm -hmm. they're watching the show, you know, the famous, wonderful Fluff Lacoe, our line captain. Uh, the, the glass just gave way and fell into the audience. And so, the, but the show just, keeps going on like they go out there they help the people they're clearing things and the show goes on amazing it's so bizarre you think how many lawsuits that would happen now because we've had we hello hollywood hello we had a horse go in the audience we had a horse fall in the rain trap uh there's there was uh an act that actually had fallen and, and several broken bones but just the things that we did of climbing onto sets when they're still moving getting on the elevators is coming yeah. up now we're going oh my gosh ellen and i there's things that just would not would not go but when I was in the Dune show, they have this flying staircase that comes down from the ceiling and it touches the staircase that's moved in from the floor. And, and the, the top part are very narrow stairs. And when you're five foot 10 woman, you, you have, we, we have like size 10 feet. And then you're wearing heels and you have to come down the stairs to the music. 
So there's this lineup of uh, showgirls that are coming down the stairs and the thing was this huge, and everything, you know, was natural feathers and rhinestones. So we uh, first, the first, well, the opening number had four parts to it. So you come out with the tuxedo, the top hat and the cane, and you're doing the number and you're dancing around and then you run off and you're ripping it all off because of the Velcro and underneath is your body, uh, the fishnets with the rhinestones going all over the legs, around the boobs and uh, attached rhinestones everywhere. And then you put the, you go upstairs and they put this cape on and inside the capes are different colors. And as we go down the stairs real fast like that, then we peel out towards the audience and take our position as we open our capes and, you know, reveal the boobies, you know, or whatever, you know, the showgirl <laughs> walk and um, take our position. And every now and then uh, you would hear somebody boom, 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 boom. You know, they, they, they are coming down the stairs and you, you know, you it's going to be a domino thing that they're going to pull you down. And so then I had my experience that uh, my, my heel hit the stair and I kept going down on my shins because <sighs> I couldn't put my arms to protect my fall because my arms were in the cape. And so I just went down the stairs. And when I got to the bottom, my fishnets on my legs were all shredded and I blood was coming down. And I pushed myself up from the bottom stair. And I remember my mouth was quivering and I just smiled to the audience and I went out and opened my cape. And then I went off to stage right and I left the stage. Oh my goodness. I thought I can't go back to that show. I can never do that again. Well, the thing of adrenaline too, is we get off stage and go, oh my God, what just happened? Yeah. Wow. So and, I'm curious of how much. And then oh, the, the 14th number, the women would wear crinolines. And if they fell from those, those, those stairs were just horrible. And, uh, you know, cause you, you can't see the stairs. You, you've got this, you've got the heels, you've got narrow stairs and you're trying to do it to the tempo. It's just a, an, an accident waiting to happen. So if you've got a crinoline on, stage hands would have to come out and pull the girl up from the from falling over with her crinoline on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank goodness we, we had very few accidents. Thank because goodness. the potential for disaster is pretty huge, especially yeah. Hello Hollywood, Hallelujah Hollywood, Jubilee, those big, big shows where there's just more moving parts and mm-hmm. So how much dancing, because you didn't have much to start, were you kind of adding a little as you went or you just got better at picking things up or were you taking mm-hmm. dance class? Because to do Hallelujah was, Hollywood, there's not just a walking showgirl show yeah, for I sure. Yeah, I went to the backstage studio, but I, I, always, I could pick up dance very easily. It's like I, I think somehow it was just in me that I love to dance. I love music. And so uh, like to go into the Viva Lake Girls within two weeks, but to, you know, it's, it's all dancing. You don't just stand there. You have to be able to yeah. move around in every single number. So I was real, I, I have an ability to pick it up very fast, but I can't do really, uh, you know, like jetés and, you know, double turns and things like that. So I could just, just basic stuff. So I started going to backstage and I realized, well, you know what? I'm never going to become that great of a dancer. I'm starting too late. Um, so then I paid a girl that was in the show that between shows, will you teach me private lessons on the Casino de Paris stage? And we did that for quite a while. Wow. Just the fact that you wanted to, because you could have just kept going how you were, but to want to go further, because it is interesting. I've had a dance studio for several years. There are people that come in at 18 and they just are natural and you see them I have one young man, he was a beginner. And the next thing he was advanced, he skipped all the steps. He never really learned the fundamentals. He was just such a great performer and then like hey you got to go back and learn a pot of array and how to do a proper turn 
but he was so natural. And then I see people that are beginners for 20 years, you know, like they just, they, they, they're fine being a beginner and they'll, they'll come take their beginner class and they love it, but they don't really go beyond that. So the fact that you can do it later does say a lot about your brain and your body and your ability to do it because some people can train and train and train and train and would never be on the stage. And then I went, when I was, when I was young, I wanted to do modeling and my mom said, you know, Pamela, there are a lot of pretty girls and you're, you're a girl next door. You're nice looking, but you don't want to go in that industry because they, you know, you see they're really emaciated and skinny. You don't want to get in that industry. And I thought, but I do. And uh, when I was in high school, they had a thing with the highlighters and, and uh, the department store had put it on and they had highlighters, uh, girls representing each high school. And I wasn't, uh, I was able to participate in the program and that, that just kind of uh, wet my appetite but there was another girl who was chosen and at our 50th high school reunion, she was there. Hey, Jennifer, you got, you made a highlighter. I didn't get it. Um, but you know, that's wonderful. Facebook is great for putting us together for reunions and everything. And so um, I went to Bernie Lance, which was the main modeling agency in Vegas. And I paid for my own private lessons there. And then I was in their book and then different hotels, if they wanted to find somebody representing their hotel in a pageant, I was often chosen and I became Miss Nevada four times. And How I did, did that work? Were you, oh my gosh, my feet. Were you doing that while you're doing the show? The, I'm yeah. so curious about the Miss Nevada, how that fits in with the shows and doing both at the same time. The reason why I have so many pictures is because of course, when you're a model, you have to have a portfolio. So I was very connected to Bob Patrick, which was a very good photographer and Robert Scott Hooper, wonderful guy. And so then we get the Phyllis Morris gallery or something, you know, beautiful decorations. And uh, of course I had my boyfriend at the time, he was Persian, he had a little warehouse. And in my time with him, in order to really be with him and know him, I went to Iran and traveled extensively with him and and building up shops. He had a shop in the MGM. And after the fire, of course he lost it because the the, the fire Mm -hmm. hose came through and, and it was water soaked. Um, but then he had other shops in the fashion show mall and working with him and building up his shops at the same time as I was Miss Nevada, at the same time as studying at UNLV and taking 18 credit hour load to be get my major in hotel management. And I was doing real estate also with a friend of mine. Uh, for three years, I did real estate. Um, my friend, his father was a federal Supreme Court judge in Nevada. His mother her father started the first Model T dealership in Detroit. So he came from a family that was pretty big in Vegas and they owned the land where the Boulevard Mall was and everything. And his whole thing was, I'm gonna be the son that goes into real estate. And he said, I want my friends then to help me sell these things. When I went into real estate to work with him, that's when the market went really bad in Vegas. And they, we were even offering free pools with the houses and no one was buying. It was really bad. And so I had, I think, 30 years of, of, of uh, problems in real estate. Uh, even though I liked it, it didn't like me. I, you know, I'm working with the Dome Home Company and I'm showing them land to build a Dome Home and the Dome Home Company goes bankrupt. I mean, just so many things. So what, did you do show business till you just decided to do something else? Or what was the reason of stopping doing the show? Because you'd already had your, did you have a, um, what was your degree? Hotel administration. And okay. I, so then uh, when I got that degree, they, they were shocked that I left Hallelujah Hollywood to work the front desk. You would leave. I, I really, I, I, 
I just thought, well, I have to, if I want to, uh, as much as I loved being in the shows, there has to be a time that I launch myself into it, this business career. And so when I went to work the front desk, I figured, you know, you, even though you get a degree, you can't expect that you just all of a sudden become a, you know, a manager. You still have to pay your dues, so to speak. So I went to work at the front desk. I practically lived in the MGM because my boyfriend, he had his shop downstairs. I'm modeling for Marshall Russo. I'm dancing in the show. And then I leave the show and I work the front desk. This is all <laughs> overlapping. Oh, it wasn't, wow. I, was, I had a lot of irons in the fire because it's a 24-7 town. And I couldn't decide. I, I, every, so many things interested me. I even had a, a clothing line that was coming to the California Mart and buying clothes and selling them out of my uh, re, uh, redone garage. Uh, so that was another thing, too. And uh, just, uh, I, I did a backstage look at the life of a showgirl because photography was my hobby. So I took pictures backstage and I put a brochure together and took it to all the hotels to sell to women's groups. And so I had as many as 15 people or 1500 people in the Baghdad theater at the Aladdin uh, showing my slides. Wow, it's so interesting because I talked to some people like in Hello Hollywood, Hello, that did the show, but they were working nine to five jobs or they were going to school. And I just did the show and I don't, I just played. Like I didn't, I didn't realize a lot of what was going on that people were doing outside of that. Cause I'm like, I've made it. I'm a professional dancer. I'm getting paid well. And that amazes me that you were doing all that. Cause those shows don't get done till two in the morning. Well, I also played, I like to go out dancing and Paul Lake is Jubilee was a great place. Dirty Sally's uh, uh, just every single club there was the Pussycat and Go-Go was the first one. And uh, I remember that Jim Morrison of the Stones, uh, of the Doors, excuse me, was there. And it would go until eight in the morning and then we would go to the Flame restaurant and have breakfast. And I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, when I was doing this, I was what, 19, 20 years old. And, and still I was very uh, kind of Miss Pris. I was even called Miss Pris by some of the other showgirls that um, I like to uh, experience things that I was, I, I would have sometimes men say to me, you always go home alone. Are you lesbian or something? And I said, well, this is a small town and it really matters to me, my reputation. Uh, I like to go out, I wanna have fun, I wanna dance, but I don't want everybody to know my story. So I was very, very still kind of particular about all that stuff. So uh, I wanted to, I had high aspirations for where, where I was gonna go with myself, you know, that's you know, get my hotel degree and everything. And um, so I'm helping Romy uh, in his real estate businesses and uh, being Miss Nevada and all of these different wonderful things were happening, but none of this stuff just came to me. I, I, I really was a little bit, you know, assertive and getting myself out there. Because like I said, my mom said, I've got four kids. I haven't got the money or the time to give you any lessons. And so I was belatedly giving these things to myself as I was uh, now old enough that I can make, I, I'm an adult now. I can change my life from what it was that I get one dress for school when I go back to school. And um, I also taught myself how to sew when I was around eight. There was a girlfriend I had that was two years older than me. And we made a children's book out of muslin. And, that, and because I babysat, I couldn't babysit in a messy house. So let's clean up the whole house. And then more people want me. So I went from 50 cents an hour to a dollar to a dollar 50 an hour. Then I was in such high demand that, that I, I you know, taught myself how to type fast. And then I went from babysitting jobs to secretary to buy my all white Mustang. And I would go to thrift shops and buy the fabric or the dresses, tear them apart and make, make I was wearing three piece suits to high school. 
Okay, you're a unique breed. Um, I think we might be about the same age. I'm 61. I'm 70. Almost 70. Are you? Oh my gosh, you don't look it at all. But I'm just thinking because <laughs> some of your history of those shows, I go, I know, but it's interesting of, uh, like I was saying, how, how there's a book out by um, Elizabeth Phillips about being on tour with Miss Bluebell in the 60s. Like a lot of women were expected, like you're going to get married. You could be a nurse or a teacher or I think secretary is your choice, but you're in a generation that's kind of expected that you're going to get married and then someone's going to help take care of you. It doesn't sound like you had that mindset at all. Like you were figuring out, because that does seem surprising for that, that generation to go to college, to have these career, this very career minded, like I can take care of myself. Cause it's, I think even in the eighties, it's like kind of, you'll do these shows, you might get married and then you go do this thing, but you, you had a very different mindset for what's going to come next. I, when I look back, I think, wow, I wish my mother would have been able to fill me in on how to invest in mutual funds or invest in this and that or, or what to expect with college. And I had a wonderful mother. She was my best friend, but she was a teacher. And almost all the women in my family had been secretaries, waitresses, teachers, mostly teachers. And I thought, uh, I, I found this book called Corporate Games Mother Never Taught You. And I thought, I, I don't think I'll be a president. Maybe I might be the vice president, but I want to be a woman in business because I feel that here I was already helping my boyfriend in his business. And I had a, a, a very organized and neat. So I have a business acumen in the sense that I see how the work comes in and how it flows and how maybe I can make it better. And so uh, each one of the gentlemen, the man that I married, he worked as a printer and I found a printing business for sale. I brought him clients but at the same time I had my own job and uh, helped build up a printing business. And then he had a bad temper and I said, you know, you should do martial arts, put your uh, anger into an art form instead of just running and being angry. And that, and I helped him have his own martial arts studio. So I've been kind of this backup person and I, I volunteer mm-hmm. and I'm a, I'm a backup, but I don't I ever want titles. I'll, I'll be the backup to the president. I'll be the backup to the vice president. But don't give me a title. I'll help people. And so I, that's probably why I became a therapist is I went to Paris and I'm 35 and I'd always wanted to go there. I didn't make it with Bluebell, but I'm, I'm, I'm here now. And so I was there for six months and I read the Bible and meeting of Buddhism and did all the Michelin guidebook walks. And I thought if I could go back and be a therapist and be paid money to help people, and I came back and I got my degree and a master's degree. And I worked for 15 years with the Department of Children and Family Services and built my private practice. And, and I did, did get married and have a daughter and divorced and on and on. You, you did say something. I thought it was a great quote. It's, it's hard to find a good man, but to find a, can you finish that quote? Because it was really good. The story of my life is all my life, it, it, I, I, I've been tall. And when I was in fourth grade, I was Miss, Miss Average. They were teaching us how to do averages. And what do you know? They traced me on butcher paper and I was Miss Average. But by the time I got to middle school, I realized I'm going to dances and no one's asking me to dance. I'm sitting them all out. I'm too tall. And um, I finally found a boyfriend, Tim, and he was tall and good looking. And I introduced him to my four girlfriends and he went for the shortest one. You know, he, the tall guy, the little woman. And when I met her again at the, at the high school reunion, she said, are you mad at me at all that I stole Tim from you? And I said, you know, it's 
story of my to life. find a good tall man because that's like all the girls listening that are bluebells we like you don't get to partner because you're too tall so when you get to be in these shows with tall men and you don't feel like the one sticking out it's such a wonderful thing to you almost feel petite when you have like a six foot man on stage with you to not always be towering over the boys because I remember the class photo being in the front row with the short people and the next year I was in the back with the boys yes and it's just, yeah, and then you want to shirk a little bit and bring your body down when so you I don't stand out. When I took the show and I thought, wow, I'm finally with tall people. You know, I don't have <sighs> to, sh- don't, don't slump, hold yourself high. Then I realized I'm tall, but there's even some taller than me. And I have a size eight and a half shoe. And some of these women have much bigger. So I thought I had big feet. So I entered this other world. And when I was in the Lido, I decided it was you know, to learn the show and I was filling in and I learned everybody's spots. I was the vacation girl. So then when a spot would come open, I think, why should some new girl have to go through what I went through? I'll just keep doing this. And, and I never had my own shoes. I'd have to put my size eight and a half feet in their 10 shoes. And that wasn't easy to dance with the shoes that don't fit. Especially going up and down stairs. And there was that, again, that wanting to help. I'll help by uh, I won't, I won't go and get my own position. I wanted this poor girl. She, she's never been a show girl before she's coming in and they're going to have, ask her to be a vacation girl. Why should she, ha- I, you know, I know it all already. Let me just keep doing it. So I have, I have two different routes. I want to go with questions. Um, but one, you're a therapist now. Did you have to do a lot of your own therapy to become a therapist? Cause I just know like friends of mine are therapists. You have to do your own work. And when you come in, like, I'm just going to help people and you go, oh, crap, I'm going to actually undo some of my own stuff. Because for you to get to not have a title, but to have, you've worked so hard, but to be not assisting, you're still helping people. But does it feel different for you now to realize where you've come and all the work you've done to get there and that maybe we can celebrate you? My, my mom said, why, why would you want to be a social worker in South Central Los Angeles and work with the dregs of society? And I said, mom, I love my family. The families are wonderful. I'm trying to help them stay together. Uh, the kids were taken from them and I get them into programs and I, I help them get their fam- lives back. So I was one of those family reunification, family maintenance, uh, social worker, therapist. And then um, when I became a, a therapist, you spent the first year understanding your own family dynamics, rituals, the l- nature versus nurture and reading. Mm-hmm. But I, I had read so much because I, I read at least three books a week and, and I go through six magazines a month. If you're to see my house, I have over 16 bookcases loaded with books. I'm, I, I'm amazed my eyeballs haven't you know just given up on me. I love <laughs> to read. So I was always reading along that line and, and learning a lot about psychology. Matter of fact, at UNLV, they pulled me into the psych department and they said, we'd like you to major in psychology. And I said, well, almost everyone here is majoring in psychology. Why, would, why are you asking me? And I was carrying an 80 credit hour load. I wasn't sure of what major I wanted. And it was the hippie time and Vietnam War. And they said, because you're turning in excellent papers. And one of my papers was on communal living because that was kind of popular at the time. And then also on homosexuality. So I asked all the guys in the show and if there was any lesbian women, if they want, might want to meet with me between shows and tell me their story. And they did, and, they, and they, they all had various reasons for why they were gay. And then I did the, the literature review on, on what it says about the XY chromosome and the dominant mother, absent father stuff. And I, 
and I just kind of like, oh, here's my paper, here's my paper. And there were three books in psychology alone and, and I'm turning in my logs of my reading. And I thought, well, if it comes that easy, uh, I'm not here to pay for an education for what comes easy. No, I want to be a woman in business. I should have listened to them because mm. they figured me out early on. Yes, I would, I would have saved myself a lot of grief because in the hotel business, when I entered it in Las Vegas, it was a casino business. And that Me Too thing we're going through, the Me Too movement, there's never been a job I've ever had where a man hasn't put the, the moves on me. Yeah, that's, um, I'm actually going to tell part of my story in the one year anniversary of just coming into that world of what I was told and what's expected. And we're when some of us are telling our story now and that Me Too, like it's assumed if you're in the business, but if any business, it didn't matter where I was working and to have therapy to work around that and to go, oh, this is not normal. This should not be acceptable. But as we grew up thinking, this is kind of how it is. So I'm super grateful <laughs> for what we know now and people yeah. that can sit with people and process through things that we just go, oh, that was way more damaging than I ever knew. So I, I don't want to, uh, there's things that uh, I, I remember Janet Boyd was in the show at the dunes with me. And she looked me up, she lives in Orange County and she came up with one of her orchids. She puts, uh, she, she grows orchids and she's so amazing. And she even left the show with her own burlesque act that Duke Molnar helped her design. And she was like in a space capsule and the door opens up and there's this dry ice and then she starts to slither out. And so she was at Barry Minsky's burlesque and she put together her own act and it was wonderful. And she has a, you might want to look at it, doing a podcast with her. She has great pictures and background. And um, so Janet Boyd, a very, very interesting mm -hmm. person. And we talked about an episode that had happened during our time in the casino show. As I mentioned, it was a different kind of group of people. And it, and it lent itself towards that kind of a, how the, the, the different men that were part of that show, how they were, how they treated some of the dancers. Because you were around, we were saying the difference of corporate Vegas and and mafia Vegas. You did you see both sides of that, or because you're kind of pre corporate when you were doing the shows, right? Like with that, just yeah. the environment of Vegas, like all the movies you see of, you know, you have oh, the shows and you've to, got the. Crime I left happening. the front desk for the Aladdin in the sales department, and I was the first female convention coordinator. And uh, now when I traveled as Miss Nevada Travel, there there were a couple of women that were executives in the hotels. And so I thought, okay, women are, are getting up there in the business, but mostly it was mostly men. Uh, the owners of the Ponderosa Ranch, uh, Scenic Airways went, uh, Governor Michael Callahan, all of these heads uh, promoting. So I was Miss Nevada Travel promoting tourism to five foreign countries to uh, San Francisco, San Diego, and Las Vegas, the Triangle. And uh, I don't know why they left Reno out, but uh, <laughs> in any case, uh, that was a wonderful experience in doing all of, all of that. Um, excuse me, I just kind of went over there, but what was the main question you were asking me? Uh-oh. <laughs> I forget. That's okay. I forget. Oh, just, oh, just about the days oh, the corporate like the America. Yeah, the corporate and stuff and the mob stuff. So then I, I, I'm there at the Aladdin, and they tell me, you know, Jim Abrams, the president of the hotel, has heard that we hired you. He feels that sales is no place for a woman, and we have to let you go. And so I realized I was making a lot less money in my position. 
And I even had an idea to write a book like uh, the fairy tales need to be rewritten so that women are not just the sleeping beauties waiting for Prince Charming to come along. We, the, the young women need to be taught that we need to have our own great ideas and make our own way. And later on, the Cinderella Complex book came out and I thought, yay, somebody else had the same idea. So I put my resumes out to uh, uh, Beverly Hills and I became uh, a director of sales for a Renaissance Hotel Management. They were building La Bellage, La Mandarine. They had L'Hermitage and La Parc Hotels. And uh, I decided, okay, it's time for me to really get in the hotel business. And then from there, I thought I like advertising more, the marketing part. So then I segued over to Footcomb Building Honig as an account executive. And then I came back to Vegas and I was promoting the Hacienda Hotel. And this gentleman from Reno who ran the Reno's largest ad agency, Dunn Draper, Gustin Curtis, said, we'd like to ha have you... Um, work for us and open the Las Vegas office. And then later on, it was bought by R&R Advertising, Sig Rogish. But I, the, the main account that I brought in was the State of Nevada Tourism account. I'm just in awe. I think every time I do an interview, every everybody's story is just amazing to me. I love, love, love stories. But these are, these are such unique and different, just that you were... <laughs> hired without much dance and you get to succeed in this business here and then while you were doing that you're doing all these other things like just your drive is inspiring well thank I'm, also, you. I'm also exhausted it makes me tired <laughs> like yeah, but, how but, hard you've worked you know when I look back on that and I think I think you know blame it on my youth that when you're young and it's a 24-7 town and I didn't know where to say no all of it was like so exciting and and yeah I want to do this and yeah I want to do that and and Vegas, wonderful to live in Vegas, wonderful. Did you live, like a lot of people live further out. I think back then a lot of people were closer in and now it's so spread out. Like I know people that were in Jubilee that were buying houses out in Henderson. Like you don't have to live in what people assume is Vegas. Like it's beautiful on the outskirts, but I don't know how that was back then if people were pretty much closer into where everything was happening. Well, um, I li when I grew up, it was in North Las Vegas. And I, maybe you've experienced this, that you go back to your home and there's other people living there. So you can't get really close in. And all of a sudden, one day I went back and it wasn't that many years ago. I spent about 12 years helping most everyone I love or has ever loved me die. And in 2014, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm all alone. So thank goodness for Facebook. I went on, I found people and I found a, a cousin with his kids and I'm you know, going to these reunions and stuff and getting to know people. And I go down the street on my first family home on Flower Avenue the street looks really bad. It's not how it used to look when I was a kid and it's empty. And I remember I went back and I look in the windows and immediately you're flashed with the memories of everything and everything looks smaller inside. It was just, mm. they changed the floor and there used to be the, the fireplace over there. And there was this, and, and it was, I was so flooded with nostalgia. I had to back away and realize, Oh, my heart, my heart that, uh, these memories and, and, and that, you know, you experience stuff. And we, like, when you leave the show, many of us show people, we talk about the fact of having dreams that you're, you're, you know, you want to get, get back into the show. There's, um, yeah, they get the childhood stuff. It overlaps with the showbiz stuff. Cause a lot of people brought it up in their interview and it's kind of the common thing is people, they have, you're supposed to know the show. Like you come back and like, come on, you're supposed to just go back in. Like, I don't know the show or <laughs> I'm trying to find my one headpiece. Like I can see the backstage in the dressing room 
and somebody's moved my hat and like, I think it's whatever stress is in my life of being unorganized or not being able to figure out what I'm supposed to do. I go back to the show yeah. thing. Cause I think it's that, that adrenaline, like, I don't, I don't have the dreams anymore about trying to open my locker at high school. If I have, <laughs> if I'm going through stress now, I'm always backstage at MGM. I did other shows, yeah. but they were never that same, like, oh my gosh, if you're one second off the whole show, like if you miss an entrance, if you, you know, can't find a piece of your costume, there, it's just as interesting of a therapist, if you could work with all of us and tell about, we could all call you with our dreams about the shows and see what you can figure out if, if we love our mother or not, if that shows up, <laughs> that's the dream. Yeah, I would, so looking at that, working as a social worker in South Central, that my mother could relate to that. In a lot of ways, we were similar, but uh, I, I realized part of therapy, you talk about transference, counter-transference. And that is where sometimes you're meeting with a client and the client sometimes looks at you as being the mother or the father figure, depending, and they transfer their emotionality to you on that. And the counter-transference for the therapist with the client is whereby somehow the client has said something and it triggers something within you and you have to recognize what's going on there. So I realized if I hang up my shingle and say, Pamela Payton, therapist, and I want to have my office, um, then when I do get clients, if I need them to buy my grocery money, how much am I really able to let them go and be helpful? So I thought, you know what? I have to have a job that pays the bills. And when I do therapy, it's just the cherry on the on the, the, the cupcake. And when I shared this with other therapist friends, even when I've been on the board of my association, no one ever relates to that. Nobody ever says, yeah, you know, I see that point of view. They, they look at, it's like, what are you talking about? This is the way we make our living. But for me, it felt like it was a counter transference for me to really help a client. And I'm a brief therapist. I usually do sessions probably within six sessions. And I'm a cognitive behavioral once I give them tools. And, and I'll even say, you know what? You've got the tools down and you're doing really well. You know, go on your way and you can always call me and schedule. But I don't want to therapize patients. I don't need to hold on to them for my grocery money. Mm. Wow. I'm just processing all this good stuff. <laughs> I so do. Sweet. It's so good though, because I, I really am a huge fan of therapy. Now that I've experienced and know that my life has changed because of really good therapy and good therapists and looking back on things that just seem normal and you go, Oh, that's really effed up. Like maybe that wasn't healthy <laughs> or I'm who we choose in life. Too. You know, like uh, I have two main tools, a coping skills tool and a relationship toolkit. And during the time of all those losses, I thought, thank goodness I've had those tools. Just two tools of 11 pages, but I put them into daily practice. And sometimes following a certain structure, it keeps us from stepping on our own cord and limiting our own selves the, the way that we do, you know? Wow. You're I, so have quite, I, have, I have questions, but I'm still going, just hang on to this. This is so good. Stick this right here in your head before it falls out. Because <laughs> this is, this is going to be a weird transition because I know that people have approached you about your story. And they want to know about the mob days, but there's so much more to your story. It's about you, but I'm just curious now, when you think of being a woman growing up in that time, being in the shows, I know that sometimes the, the casino expected the girls to come out and fraternize. And I know when I did hello, Hollywood, Reno was not a place for that. Anyway, we would just take our makeup off and go home and go you to bed. We that. didn't, but I don't know, like growing if being in the shows at that time where it really was a different expectation of the dancers. I don't know if you experienced that or hotel to hotel is different or show to show. Yeah. I heard about it when I came into the dunes there, I realized even when I was at the stardust that there were a couple of girls where we get out 
that worked for the house. But if a maitre d' brought somebody in and they'd say, okay, see, that's her there. And some of those women would do things on the side for the house. And I think that the, the, the casino paid them some money. Uh, the, I did know a couple of girls who were doing those things on the side. Um, you know, when I asked, what, what is it like, you know, when you go there, you know, one of them said, Pamela, believe me, you don't want to, you don't want to go there. You don't want to do that. So I realized that uh, whatever led each one of them in there to do that it was kind of like, uh, I, I want to like them for who they are and what I know already. I don't want to know more. And right. that was, so there's a part of me that uh, have, has always kind of, um, I guess, been judgmental about that to some degree that that's not ever where I'm going to go. Cause like I said, I'm kind of Miss Pris and a little prudish uh, still to this day. <laughs> I don't know. It's some, some, I was never promiscuous. Let me just put it that way. So that was kind of the sign of the times too, is uh, the hippie thing was more promiscuity. And I, I just was lived in a small town. And so now I, Frank Rosenthal is the president of the Stardust and two other hotels. And at Paul Anka's jubilation, he's already had a couple of co-hosts before me, uh, Donnie and um, Angelica something. So now um, he's looking for another co-hostess to be in Paul Anka's jubilation. And he approaches me, he says, I understand you're in Miss Nevada and you're in the show. And so he's talking with me about it. And he says, okay, uh, we, we're meeting outside the Aku Aku, you know, that wonderful restaurant in the Stardust. He said, I've chosen you. Okay, what am I supposed to do? He said, just sit with me in the Palenka's jubilation and uh, I'll talk with you and you talk with me. And I said, okay, that's all? He said, yeah. I said, just follow my lead and you just talk with me. And I hardly even knew him. You know, I mean, it, it was very remote. And so we're, we're sitting there and there was a friend of mine, Wayne Albritton, who was kind enough to do three videotapes I have of the show because I didn't have a VCR or anything then. And uh, Jerry came over, his wife, and she was very uh, inebriated. And she's supposed to dance with Jeff Kutash of, you know, Splash, and he's the choreography of the Jeff Kutash dancers. And Jeff doesn't want to look like he doesn't know how to dance, but he's like half the height of Jerry. And Jerry's drunk. And she's come over and she's talking with Frank, and Frank is kind of dismissing her. And then they do the segment that she's dancing with Jeff and Jeff is just kind of moving around like she's a rag doll. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, then when we we're in the editing room, which I was lucky to be in there because I wanted to be a part of all that. Um, it, I was kind of like, of course, they, they're not going to take any editing situation from me, but it was just, I was in the room. They were trying to figure out how to show this and not make it look bad when they did show it on TV. So I was approached by somebody that let's write your book but the main emphasis is is how much you knew Frank and Jerry Rosenthal and then when you went to Los Angeles that you ran into Jerry and blah 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 and you know put all this stuff in the book I said that is only the little teeny weeny tip of my thumb there's the rest of the story of Vegas the showgirl the Miss Nevada the all the other stuff like oh no just emphasize the mob stuff and I so that that's not my plan when I'm doing my book is to emphasize the mob stuff yeah, there is almost like a, I'd the word for it, but it's almost like it's romanticizing some of that. Like there's so many movies about that time. And so I always felt very safe when I was in Reno, but I didn't do Vegas. But I think that there's like, so, there's so many surprises I had of these are good home people that do the show. They're yeah. raising kids they are going to school. They're doing like stuff that you were doing, going to school. And 
that there is some assumption that we were all wild. Know that you know there's a few virgins in the show that came in that way. At when least. I did the backstage look at the life of a showgirl, I also said the showboy, and I showed their dressing tables, and I showed me coming into work, putting my makeup on, and the different changes, and showing the run of the show and everything. Just it's the backstage, and I did a few side stage show pictures. I I still had been looking to put that into a book, and so a, a really quick side story. I'm in Beverly Hills and I'm now running a couple of printing businesses for a doctor. So many different, so many things, I different things. So I'm not having a glass of wine in a Carol O'Connor's gingerbread man. And so guys come in and they say, oh, Erte, the wonderful costume designer and sculptor painter Erte is 94 years old and he's having a showing the next block over with plague lights, red carpet treatment. And I said, oh my goodness, wow. And I told him about my, we we're talking about these. I said, my showgirl book. And they said, well, if your showgirl book isn't tits and ass, it probably won't sell. And I said, well, it's not. It's really, uh, let's let people realize that we're human beings and we have, we traveled the world. We speak many languages. We are educated. And he said, well, that probably won't sell very much. Just, you know, just want you to know, but let's go see Airtake. So I go over there. I'm in the line to see Airtel. I see all these Hollywood celebrities. I, you know, I can name off names. We haven't got time. And now right in front of me is Mrs. Harold Robbins. I read all of Harold Robbins' books. You know, and some of them were made in the movies, The Adventurers. I think, oh my goodness, I'm just me. And there's Mrs. Harold Robbins. And what am I doing here? And so all of a sudden, the, the journalist introduces me to Erte, blah, 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 Liam Renault at the Casino de Paris. And Erte gets excited. He wants me to sit next to him. And he's speaking all the French, boom, boom, boom. And I, the, the interpreter steps in. And everybody had to wait about 20 minutes that Erte wanted just to talk with me. <laughs> because I've been in, I had been in the show with Liam Renault. We did an Erte fashion show in Reno where we wore some of the costumes from Hello Hollywood, but I just remember the way they did the stage. Like that's one of the beautiful things those shows you get asked to do extra. Yeah. My audition, I did meet Miss Bluebell in person. I auditioned in Vegas at the, on the Stardust, no, it was at the MGM stage for Hello Hollywood, Hello. And I didn't really know it was, what I was in for. I didn't know it was topless and I got hired called home and my mother said, no man will ever marry you if you do this. I mean, there was a lot of, um, shame. I, I want to do this show so bad. I wanted to, to be a dancer, but then when my family reacted the way they did, I went to Miss Bluebell's room to sign my contract and I just broke down crying. And I just said, like, my parents disown me. My mom said, I won't get married. I'm a Christian. Like I, if anyone at home finds out, I just, I mean, I was sobbing. I was crying so hard because I wanted it. I remember Miss Bluebell kind of hugging me and she said, these girls are hot. Like she's like, you said, they're educated. They, a lot of them have kids. They've married good men. They, they go on to do other things. And she, I know she didn't need to tell me that to win me over because there's a million girls that wanted that job. If I said no, she would have had another one ready to go. But I'm so glad I heard that because, you know, I think there was a TV show that was called Vegas back in the time. Yeah. The illusion from the Robert movies is the sh- Yes. Oh my gosh. And I wanted to wear those costumes. But, and I remember being told by someone else that you have to sleep with the producer to get hired. Like this was also a sexual assault that happened because of this conversation. Mm. That, that another story, but basically this is what you have to do. And so when I went down there and to found, find it very different to be respected in these jobs and to be well taken care of and to find these people with such high character that had, you know, if you were high school graduate or if you come from, from college, 
that everybody just had these wonderful stories and they were not what people perceive as a showgirl or a Vegas dancer. Yeah. So I think some of the podcasts for myself and for Athena is we want to redeem the, the, the name showgirl and just the association to find out these are people yeah. with, and your story is, is so unique. Like yours is different than anyone else's I've interviewed. <laughs> Well, it's wonderful. Um, I mean, I really appreciate your saying that. I think that it's um, when somebody approaches me and says, oh, let's just do this around the mob and and that that's the, their main emphasis, I think. Well, let's talk for a while. And after I even talked for a while, I still saw that this person was fixated on it has to be a more of the emphasis on the mob story. Who's going to really care about all that? And, and here you're showing to me that, yes, it is an interesting story that it, it doesn't, I, I barely spoke about the mob at all during this, this time that we've been talking. And, and what you said as well, when I had on my resume, I thought, well, I can't discount 12 years of my life. So I put down there, a Miss Nevada uh, four times and a dancer in major production shows in Las Vegas. And I realized after a time I had to remove it from my resume because even though HR is supposed to keep it confidential, word would get out and the main emphasis, oh, I heard that you were a Las Vegas showgirl. And everyone seemed to think that that was very risque, that it somehow took away from my credibility of being a director of sales, you know, of these hotels. There was one guest I had on that had on a resume was told to take it off and kind of left that part of her life. And, and I don't think she had told her story for so many years because a lot of us moved on and that was just something in our past where when she reconnected, it's like, no, that's who I am. That's part of it. And so to dismiss it, that people won't understand it. It's like, well, let's help them understand it better. Let's help them understand yeah. who these people are. And that, that, yeah, we weren't loose and that we actually have brains in our heads. And, and one time uh, my ex-husband said to me before we, he became my ex, he said, uh, sometimes you have the showgirl personality. And I said, what do you mean by that? And then when he, what he ended up describing was really the personality I had even become before becoming a showgirl is I'm very optimistic and, and sunny side up and cheerful. And somehow because he knew I'd been a showgirl, he's been, let, let's just call this a showgirl personality. And I think that many times people have a tendency to really uh, reconstruct and uh, this other version in their heads. Yeah. So as we wrap up, you have really a wonderful timeline and it's not like somebody do, does this and this, you have them all happening all at the same time <laughs> in some periods, which is wonderful. But when you look back at your showgirl time and your dancer time, how do you think that changed you as a person? Like, and to be able to succeed in what you do, it may not be related or it might, but I think there's things we took away that we maybe didn't know until later, how it actually like helped us in several ways. Oh my gosh. It just, it was one of the, the, the jewels of my life, the, the best embellishment upon my whole lifetime up till now, my 70 and a half years, is to know that from age 18 into 30, I was a Las Vegas showgirl dash dancer in my own little capacity. It was a joyous experience that I would wish on every girl to have in the world. I, I wish that my sister could have experienced it yeah. as well. I know that my two sisters were very envious of me that I was able to have those experiences. Um, because even though they were tall, they didn't move. They didn't know how to move. Mm. That's a long was, career. That was a really long career. Uh, you had. A lot of irons in the fire and there were still uh, things I didn't share a lot, you know, cause this yeah. is just one hour, but, and, and, you know, speaking just here, there and everywhere. Um, 
but thank you so much for having me on your show and that I could be able to share it all and meeting you and getting to know you. And I hope to carry on this uh, liaison. And every, every story is adding to the big picture and it's beautiful. And I'll, I've been doing circle back. So I would love to come back because there's never an hour just doesn't do it. Cause you just get a taste. And then I want to ask a question off of everything you bring up. I could take us down 75 bunny trails. <laughs> so well, like, let me, I want to add one more thing. Mm-hmm. 22 years ago, I woke up and I couldn't walk. And uh, then after three days, I drug my leg around the office and a nurse in the office said, let me see your legs. And so I usually wear pants and I pulled up my pant leg and she said, oh, your, your ankles are very swollen. You have a circulation problem. Go see a doctor right away. So I was diagnosed with severe progressive rheumatoid arthritis and Sjogren's syndrome. So I have two autoimmune diseases. And immediately, because I read, I read on them and, and I started the chemotherapy, which I had a treatment earlier today. And I, so I, I do my weekend treatments and then my infusion treatments. And so I don't have any disfigurement and I'd be yeah. able to still tap dance and do that on the side and I, I'd have a quality of life. But I, as a therapist, I met people who have had a diagnosis and they, they didn't read, they didn't study, they, they want to get on disability and they haven't done what they need to do about it. But I think that when you have had experience as a dancer, you persevere. It, there's that part of you that no matter what, you you see how you, you like you said, I think you said you had, had a hip replacement. True. Yeah, how you can keep on keeping on. Yeah. Okay, I got a little teary. Just the fact that you've gone through all that and you're tap dancing and your story at the beginning of this started with tap dancing with the cans on the feet. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Every every one of every person I've talked to needs to have a movie made about them. Everyone, oh. like your story would. I don't know who would play you, but you can think about that, and we'll come back to oh, your themes. Meryl Streep. There we go. <laughs> Call her. I'm sure you've got contact somewhere that someone could reach out and yeah. could play that. Thank you so much Thank for this, you. Pamela. This was a wonderful interview. And then we will post some of your amazing photos. And I got to let people know if they hear that they figure it out, that you don't have to pay for these, these, these podcasts. So people are finding each other and hearing each other's stories of, you know, somebody they may have worked with and never known all that was going on in your life at the time and what's happened since. So thank you for contributing to this wonderful book that's being written individually, but we're all kind of writing it collectively. Like let's thank redeem you, the show girl. Uh, Take care of yourself. And I look forward to talking to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.